Hi, I'm R.A. Salvatore, Bob Salvatore. Been writing fantasy books for 25 years now and going strong, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's show, we chat with New York Times best-selling science fiction and fantasy author Simon R. Green. Yeah, we learn how he started writing some of some of my favorite book series, like the Deathstalker series, Secret History series, Forest Kingdom series, and more. He's, he's got tons of series. Yeah, I hear he's written a few books in his time. <laughs> Um, he also gives some writing tips, tells us what he has coming up, and he also fills us in on his new movie and gives us some fun stories. And we had a great time chatting with him, and we really can't wait to share the interview. Now, you may have noticed that we have slowed down on our release of new episodes. No, I hadn't noticed. Part of that is my upcoming book coming out in October. It's called uh, Television on the Wild Wild Web and How to Blaze Your Own Trail. You can actually pre-order it now on Amazon. Yes. Okay, cool. And as you may have guessed, it's about uh, how to create your own web series. It's packed with, you know, my own experiences, uh, research I've done, and the many interviews I've done either on my own or with this very podcast you're listening to with many, many web series creators. Yes. That's kind of consumed my life for a few months now. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Consumed our lives for quite some yeah. time. Yeah, but very excited to finally have it finished. I look forward to sharing it. Uh, but enough of that. Let's get back to... What our interviews coming up? Yes, but first, we would like to mention that the music you heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, one of his experiences he was talking about, our mm-hmm. web series, Reality on Demand. It is a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. Now, you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. And now it's time to chat with Simon R. Green. Well, let's just start with with where it all began. You know, dive right in. Yeah. All right. Okay, I've got a really good story about how I got started. Um, I started writing when I was a student in London way back when, and I saw a handful of short stories that wasn't getting anywhere. I had a, a BA and an MA, and I couldn't get a decent job to save my life. I finally got a job working in a shop, and. Not long after, I was made redundant, laid off, and I was unemployed for the first time in my life, and I thought, if ever I'm going to take my writing seriously, now is the time. I was unemployed for three and a half years. Wow. It was the 80s, there was a lot of it around. And during that time, I wrote seven novels, all of which were rejected repeatedly. I finally get a job at a bookshop in Bath. I start work on the Monday. On the Wednesday, I get a letter from America, from Ace Books, saying, you know that manuscript you sent us two years ago that we've been sitting on in silence ever since? We want to buy it. Mm-hmm. And we like the characters so much, would you be interested in writing five more books featuring the same characters? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I think I could be persuaded. <laughs> and that was how I got started, with a six-book deal out of nowhere. I am told this is unusual. I'm prepared <laughs> to believe it. This six-book deal got me my American agent, Joshua Bilmers, who's now at Jabberwocky. 
he then went on to sell most of the other books that I'd written while I was unemployed. And that's how I got started. Suddenly, I started writing in 73. I, I made this deal in 88. So after 15 years of trying and getting nowhere, I'm an overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, that's how I got started. So I guess the lesson in all this is persistence pays off. <laughs> also known as I was too dumb to know I was beaten. I just kept going. <laughs> if I'd known it was going to be 15 years, I'd have said, hell with it, I'll be a plumber. Good <laughs> money in plumbing, they tell me. Yeah, it's not bad from what I hear. It reminds me of um, Bob Woodward, you know, one of the reporters who broke the Watergate scandal. And I think they said he used to line his cubicle or office with his rejection letters. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> he actually I, wallpapered I was, I was with... I got rejected by pretty much every major and most of the minor publishers. <laughs> In fact, I can give you a horror story. One of the publishers that I sent a book to, this is Blue Moon Rising, one of my early fantasy novels. At the time, Del Rey books were publishing the Stephen Donaldson books, you know, um, the, Steve, the um, Law of Faust Bane and all those books where the hero was a leper. And I thought, if they'll publish that, these guys are open to strange stuff. <laughs> so I sent them Blue Moon Rising, which was an epic fantasy novel, 700 pages in manuscript. And the editor wrote back saying, we love this, but we have a cutoff line for new authors of 400 pages. Wow. If you're cut 300 pages, we'll publish this. Oh. Now, they're not saying it will be a better novel. They're just saying it's an automatic cut-off point. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, why don't we just cut the book in two, volume one, volume two? And they said, nope, we only buy one book from an unknown author. Now, I was desperate for that first sale, but I had to say you know, this would ruin the book. So I said, no, send the manuscript back, and they did. This book later sold to Rock, completely uncut, and was my first bestseller. It's <laughs> a dish best savored cold. <laughs> it sounds like it. So how does one get that sort of, um, I don't know, fortitude to, to keep going in the face of all of that rejection? Or is it just you were too stubborn to give up? Or is there any tips that yeah, you might give them? that. <laughs> You always think it's the next book. The next book will do it. That'll be the one that, that, that gets me going. But an awful lot of it, I have to say, back then I was reading all the magazines. I was reading Amazing, Fantastic, Galaxy, um, Asimov's Analog, FNSF. And I'm reading the stories and going, you know what? A lot of this is shit. My shit is better than this shit. Why aren't they buying my shit? <laughs> I just refused to be beaten as long as they were publishing this really awful stuff. One of these people I really wanted to sell to was George Sithers, who was editing one of the magazines. And I really approved of this guy because he was publishing Avram Davidson, who was an author I absolutely loved. And I wanted to be in this magazine. And I think on four separate occasions, um, I sold a story to the editor of The Flush Pile. We said, yes, we love this. I'll just tell, get George to look at it and approve it, and you'll be in the magazine. And on all four occasions, George Sears rejected it. Years later, I met one of the Slush Pile readers who said, I wouldn't take it personally. He rejected much better writers than you. Hmm? Not sure how to take that. <laughs> 
in at least two of the cases, I took two of the novelettes and turned them into novels, which sold for rather more money than George Sitters would ever have paid me anyway. So once again, I managed to, to claw something back. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to have a gambler's mentality. The next one's going to be, I'm going to be big. I'm going to make it big in the next one. <laughs> That's it. You just, you just keep going. And it turned out I was right and they were all wrong. How good does that feel? <laughs> it must feel good. And not long after that, you got into writing adaptations. I believe you wrote the uh, adaptation for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which was a, a, a pretty good seller there. This came out of nowhere. Um, to put it in context, Dances with Wolves hadn't come out yet. Yeah. And the advance word on it was not too good. I mean, a Western, three hours long with <laughs> subtitles. No one had any faith in it. So when the rights for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves were put up for auction, nobody wanted it. And my then publisher, Ace, got the rights for a pittance. And they looked at their list of names and said, who do we get to do this? And they said, oh, Simon Green, English, Robin Hood, English. Ooh. <laughs> so they phoned my agent and said, would he like to do it? And my agent said, he might. How much are you offering? And they said, $7,500. Now, at the time, novelizations usually started around 50000 You can see how low down on the totem pole this one was. Oh, my gosh. And on top of that, they wanted a 200-page novel from the screenplay in two months. Oh, wow. Oh. They left a bit late. So my agent said to me, do you want to do this? It's not much of a deal, but I've managed to get you a sweetener. They're offering you 4% royalty. Now, the only reason they offered this is because they didn't expect it to even make back the $7,500. Oh, they my God. They didn't expect to pay anything in royalties. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do it for the experience. If I do a good enough job, maybe they'll give me a better paying job later down the road. Mm -hmm. So they sent me the screenplay, and I'm here to tell you, the screenplay for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, was a piece of cheese. <laughs> it was awful. It was Indiana Jones in Sherwood Forest. <laughs> so I looked at it and thought, what the hell am I going to do with this? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to rewrite the hell out of it, and that's what I did. And I plowed through it. I got it done in two months. I sent it in. It went straight from me to them to the printers. That's how far behind they were. Now, what I didn't know was, because I'd never done one before, you're not supposed to change it. No. <laughs> you're supposed to take the screenplay and just do what it says in front of you. Well, I rewrote the hell out of it. Because there wasn't much humor in the screenplay. I'm here to tell you, all that stuff you saw in the film about the sheriff shouting, cancel Christmas, that was the actor ad living. There was none of that in the screenplay. Oh, you're kidding. And it's also, they only shot about half of the screenplay. If they'd shot the whole thing, it would have been four hours long. See, if you've watched the film and the plot made no sense, it's because they didn't shoot half of the screenplay. Oh, my God. If you want to know what's actually going on, read my adaptation, because it's all in there. <laughs> but a couple of things that, that caught me were the historical howlers <laughs> in the script. There's a bit where Robin and his Arab chum turn up at the White Cliffs of Dover. And Robin says, tonight we'll dine with my father in Nottingham. Well, not unless he's got a Porsche parked somewhere handy. That's about four weeks' travel in those days. <laughs> and later on, there's a bit where Robin and the Merry Men are walking through Sherwood Forest, and the script says they walk past Hadrian's Wall, which is the border between England and Scotland. Yeah. 
So I don't know what weed the merry men were smoking, <laughs> but this will be a bit like walking through New York and seeing the Alamo. <laughs> and on top of that, one of the co-writers was a guy called Pendention, who's actually done some quite good work elsewhere, who used to be English a while back. So he decided to make the merry men authentic and gritty by giving them a standard English swear word, which is bollocks. Um, the Americans, as I understand it, don't really know that word. Uh, basically, men have two when they hang down between his legs. <laughs> so I thought, the Americans aren't going to get this, but it's in the screenplay, I'll leave it in. When they sent me my free copy of the book, I'm leafing through it, and I discover the word bollocks has disappeared and has been replaced by the word bullocks because they put it through the spell checker. <gasps> oh, my gosh. So the merry men are talking about immature cattle for no apparent reason <laughs> all through the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have to say, um, it didn't get me any more adaptations because when Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the adaptation came out, everyone was so keen to see what was going to be the follow-up to Dances with the Wolves that they all rushed out and bought this book. And it became my first New York Times bestseller. Sold a third of a million copies in just under two months. And I'm on royalties. <laughs> Helped pay for the house I'm living in. Oh, good. That's wonderful. I never really came back to me for another adaptation. I think they thought, we can't really afford him after this. Oh, that's funny. Did, at one point, they, they did sort of suggest they might want me to do one more, and it was going to be the Steven Spielberg film Hook. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Well, having seen the film, I'm just really grateful they didn't ask me to adapt it, because I thought that was awful as well. <laughs> it would written the hell out of that, and Spielberg would not have been impressed. Oh, man. I watched all those movies as a kid. <laughs> I re yeah, those were really good. <laughs> So you've written a lot of books, a lot of different series. And that's sort of the understatement of the yeah. year, isn't it? You got, you got your death. Feminine yeah, Green's written a few books, I've heard. Yeah, he's written a few. <laughs> so you got yes, I have just handed in my 50th novel. Oh, wow. wow. I didn't realize it was that many. <laughs> two a year for 25 years. Wow. See, um, they ought to do a, a TV special for that, like they did in the 50 years of Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> and why not, I say. <laughs> You have quite a few series, many of which like I really love. Well, I like them all, but I love Deathstalker quite a bit. Yeah. Um, that one kind of grew on me. Um, it was supposed to be three 500-page novels, which became five 700-page novels because the damn thing... Basically, just characters just kept coming in and taking over. <laughs> and I killed them off as fast as I could. You probably noticed, but they kept going. And famously, in the middle of the third book, Deathstalker War, I stopped everything dead so that I could write a 200-page chapter, which was essentially the Muppets starring in Apocalypse Now, <laughs> which I did just because I wanted to. And There's no better reason. Famously, when I got to the end of the second book, I left a plot thread hanging open and completely forgot about it in book three. So in book four, I had to go back and actually do a flashback chapter to catch up on the bit I'd forgotten to do. It shows it was getting a little bit out of hand. <laughs> but I got to the end of the fifth book, um, 
main character dies at the end. Now, this was no, should not have been a surprise. I put a prophecy in the first book saying he was going to die. I repeated the prophecy in the third book saying, no, really, honestly, he's going to die. <laughs> and then in book five, he dies. And I was getting almost death threats from people saying, you've killed my favorite character. How could you? <laughs> uh, guys. You weren't paying attention. <laughs> from the beginning, you knew this was going to happen. But I got to the end of the fifth book. I've done five 700-page novels. I think that's it. I'm death stalked out. I am done. I go to a convention. My editor at the time was there, and she sits me down for a breakfast meeting because American editors, they are fiends for the breakfast meeting, and I am not a breakfast person. <laughs> she is sitting there with a full fry-up in front of her. I'm sitting there with a black coffee. And she says, right, we want more Deathstalker books. I said, he's dead. In fact, most of them are dead. Mm -hmm. We don't care. We sold. We want more. Um, um, okay. Deathstalker, the next generation. <laughs> You're fine. Thank you. I said, right. So I did three more. And that was it. That was eight Deathstalker books and what should have been a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> now, I keep threatening. I'm, I'm going to go back and do at least one more book because I've got some threads that are left open. Um, but some of the Deathstalker characters have appeared in my other series. I mean, in the Secret History books, one of the Deathstalker characters ends up there. Mm -hmm. And there are mentions of um, Owen Deathstalker in the night side as well. So um, never say never. <laughs> <laughs> now, you kind of, kind of hinted a little bit to your writing process about how some characters just sort of started taking over and coming in. So it, it sounds like it's a little bit... Uh, I don't know, is the word organic? <laughs> it kind of takes on a life of its own. Well, Could you walk us through your writing process a little bit? Well, every writer has their own way of doing things. I firmly believe in doing as much plotting in advance as possible, but leaving space for happy accidents. So if a character comes in and starts working well, there's room to take him and let him fly. But the way I work basically is I'll start with an idea, take the idea and break it down very simply into... We start here, we end there, and we're going to cover these places as we go along. Then I break that down into chapters. Then I take the chapters and break them down into scenes, and that's when I start writing. So that all the major decisions have been made in advance. All the heavy lifting has been done. Mm -hmm. So when I actually start writing, all I've got to do is concentrate on the prose, on the words itself so that I can write maybe 15 to 20 pages in a day because I never have to stop and think what happens next. That's already been done. So I'll do a first draft in which get it down on the page. Let's have a look, see what it looks like. Don't worry if it contradicts itself. Don't worry if you're putting things in that you're later take out. Let's see what it looks like. The second draft is simply working out what you actually need, polishing and refining these are both done in longhand, pencil on paper. Then I'll take a third draft and type it out and make the, the final polish in the machine, and that's what goes to the publisher. Now, I've got a, a writer friend called Chaz Brentley who writes wonderful thrillers, and I told him how I worked, and he, he practically fainted away on the spot because <laughs> he is one of those writers who just starts writing and sees where it takes him. And he said to me, you know, where does this leave room for spontaneity? And I say, 
Well, writing is a lot like acting. You don't want spontaneity. You want the appearance of spontaneity. You need, you need to make it look like it's spontaneous, but while still remaining in control. And the way I do that is extensive plotting in advance. But like I say, you've got to leave room for the happy accident, like the Muppets meet Apocalypse Now. <laughs> if I hadn't planned on it, it just suddenly came to me, and before I knew it, I was off and running. And sometimes a character will come along who is simply so much fun. Either there's simply so much to do with him that you just carry on, or sometimes they just won't get off stage, and you just have to carry on until finally you can push him out the door and move back to where you thought you were going. <laughs> so plot as much as you can, but leave room to go running off in any direction that looks like fun. Good, that's a good tip. Um, I'm curious, uh, is there an example of one of the characters that was supposed to be kind of take an exit really early on, but end up sticking around a lot longer? Yep. Uh, from the night side, I think um, Dead Boy, who was a character who was murdered and came back possessing his own dead body, only to find that he should have read a small print in the contract and now he can't get out of it. He was supposed to come in and just be a minor character, and he ended up being in practically all the night side books because he was so much fun to write. And his dialogue was the easiest dialogue I've ever written. He just, I just started work, and he, and he just kept going. Um, more recently, in the Secret Histories books, one of the main characters is the armorer, who is essentially the cute... I mean, the Secret History books are my secret agent uh, involved in cases of fantasy, magic, science fiction. And they're, but they're sort of James Bond star characters. The main character is Shaman Bond. And we've got a character called the Armor, who is essentially the Q Armor. His job is to come up with the, the weird and wonderful gadgets. And I wrote him into the first book just purely as a functional character. And he ended up being in every single book because there was simply so much to the character. I kept finding more and more about his background and what he was and what he'd been and what he was going to do, that he just became a presence throughout the entire series. I've just written um, a short story for uh, a collection of my short stories called Tales from the Hidden World, which will be out this summer. And I want to do an original story to go with the reprints of all the other stories. So I wrote an original story just featuring the armorer called A Question of Solace in which the armorer is thinking back over his days as a field agent and trying to decide, did he do more good out in the field working as a secret agent, or now that he's in the armory making gadgets to keep other field agents alive out in the field now? And he's trying to decide when was he most successful and what mattered to him most. Sounds good. Yeah, I really like how you have these series as you have, um, you know, Death Stalker, Secret History, Nightside, mm -hmm. Ghostfinders, like the Force Kingdom. And they're all kind of linked in different ways. Some more subtle than others. But, um, I mean, really, I, if I'm correct, Nightside, Ghostfinders, and Secret History are all modern day and technically all happening at the same time. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, my feeling is they're all my characters, so why shouldn't they meet each other? <laughs> so a character from one book will turn up in another series and they'll meet and they'll turn out to be friends with a character from somewhere else. And essentially, every, every single book ties into every other book in some way or another. And I think it's almost like Easter eggs. 
that if you, you read one of my series and you start like another series, you'll say start making connections and you're spotting things and, oh, this means that and this ties in with that. And it's sort of like an extra level of fun for those who are, who need everything. Yeah, that's actually what we're calling them Easter eggs. Mark gets really excited about those. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, Ghost Finders, I did mention that. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of wonder where that idea came from. I know it's Carnegie Institute, and there's the fictional character Carnegie. I can't remember his first name off the top of my head. The Ghost Finder. I'm kind of wondering if that was... Yeah, um, where this originally came from is from two of my favorite authors. One is M.R. James, who is possibly the best ghost story writer ever. And the other is uh, William Hope Hodgson, who back at the turn of the 20th century wrote a series of stories called Kanaki the Ghostbinder. And they are some of the scariest horror stories ever written. I love them. And I needed an idea for a new series. And I thought, much as I love the M.R. James stories, they were very much of their period. They were written in the 20s, 30s. And I thought, a lot of ghost stories tend to be set in the past. Let's do traditional ghost stories, but set them in the modern day. And so I started with the first book, um, Ghost of a Chance, and it was about a haunting in the London underground, down in the tube system. Mm-hmm. And I carried on from there. Let's see, there's four books so far in the series. I've handed in the fifth. I'll be writing the sixth by the end of the year. And that will be the end of the series, because it was only ever meant to be a fairly short arc of six books. So the sixth will be the final one. However, there is a Ghost Finders movie. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's called Judas Ghost, uh-huh. yeah. which I wrote. It's been filmed, professional cast, professional director, and it's currently out looking for a distributor. It's appeared at several film festivals. It's had a really great reception. We won at least two awards at the festivals, but we're having trouble getting a distributor. I don't quite know why. It's because, I think, because we're coming in from outside, we've got no connections, no friends, no no history, and it is very difficult to get your foot in the door. But it is out there. Hopefully, we'll have a distributor soon. In the meantime, if you go on YouTube, there's a trailer, and there's an interview with me talking about the making of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've actually watched that. Yeah, the trailer, I want yeah. to see the movie. We yeah. want to see the movie. It looks really good. Yeah. Well, again, it will be appearing in some festivals in America somewhere this year, so keep an eye out for it. And as I say, we are searching very vigorously indeed for a distributor. So you said you wrote it. So you wrote the script adaptation of it? Uh, it's an original screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out of the fact that an awful lot of people have approached me about rights to my various series, but nothing's ever been made. And I got really annoyed that, you know, that they would t- talk very enthusiastically about a series and then nothing would happen. So eventually I said, well, if nothing will happen, it, you know, let's see if we can get something off the ground ourselves. So I wrote an original screenplay. I was put in contact with a director called Simon Pierce, who'd done an awful lot of television, but was looking for his first motion picture to direct. And we sat down together, and we got on really well. So we said, great, let's get this thing going. So I raised the money, we shot it, and um, I would say at least 80 to 85% of what I wrote ended up on the screen, and that doesn't happen very often in films, I am told. Good. Yeah. Was it... uh... Have you ever written a script before? 
this was my first screenplay. Easier or harder? <laughs> it's one of those ideas that it, it comes to you, you think, this is such an obvious idea, somebody must have done it before, and you discover they haven't. The basic idea is it's a ghost finder's story. The ghost finders are called in to investigate what they think is a standard haunting. But once they get there, they discover it's a Judas ghost. You know the idea of the Judas ghost? Judas ghost, yeah. It's a trained animal which leads the other animals into slaughter. In this case, the, the traditional haunting is just a cover for something much worse. And the ghost finders, I find they've been trapped there, and they've got to figure out what's really going on and how they're going to get out this one alive. Is this the team from the books, or is it a different team? No, this is a different team. Because I thought, if I use the characters from the books, I can't kill anybody. So there's no real tension. So I created a new Ghost Finders team, and I don't think it's giving any spoilers to say not everybody makes it to the end credits. <laughs> I'm shocked. In a haunting? No way. <laughs> now, are you, are you looking for distributors in the UK or the US or both? Uh, we're starting with the US, and I believe we're also looking at foreign distributors as well. It's difficult, I am told, because you can't just go for one area. You've got to make a deal for several things at once, and that's part of what's holding us back. But to be honest, I can't think about it too much. I get too angry because it's, it is taking so long. But we were told going in it was going to be a slow process, and that's what it's turning out to be. Well, they didn't lie. <laughs> oh, it's Hollywood. <laughs> It's a bit like Chinatown, isn't it? You remember the end of Chinatown when everything's gone to hell in the handcart and they just lead Jack Nicholson away saying, it's Chinatown. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. It's Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> Very frustrating. <laughs> See, one I think it would make a really awesome movie, I always thought it would, would be Deathstalker. I know extremely expensive, but I think it would be pretty amazing. We have two or three people have approached us about Deathstalker. The problem really is it would be exceedingly expensive. We were approached by one guy who wanted to do it as an HBO series like Game of Thrones, mm. which I thought was the best way to approach it. Mm -hmm. Last I heard, he was out there trying to find funding for it. So we will see. Oh, here's hoping. Yeah, that would be. I would love to see it as an HBO style series. I think that would be perfect. Yeah, that would be a pretty good good match, actually. It would be like a sci-fi Game of Thrones. Talking of um, Game of Thrones, I've got a book out at the moment, which is Once in a Blue Moon, which is the third in the Blue Moon series. It took me a while to get to it, but one of the main motivations for writing it was, much as I love Game of Thrones, it's a pretty dark, grim series. Yeah. So I said, let's write Game of Thrones with laughs. <laughs> and that's what I did for Once in the Blue Moon. <laughs> and I think it's one of the best things I've done, and I'm, I'm very pleased with it. So it's out at the moment. Mm, I like the way you think. Yeah, the, oh, yeah. the first book, and it was a Blue Moon Rising, the first book? Yep, Blue Moon Rising was written back in 85. I did the sequel, Beyond the Blue Moon, in 2000. And here I am now, finally, doing the third part of the trilogy. <laughs> it takes me a while, but I do get there. Now, I think I read somewhere that that book is sort of semi-autobiographical in a way. Can you explain that? That's interesting. Yes. Blue Moon is autobiographical. It's talking about my life and, to an extent, my family, but expressed in fantasy terms. So it, it was a way of talking about it indirectly. 
But yeah, it's certainly, there's an awful lot of, of my life, my emotional background, my family background, provided the basic material for Blue Moon Rising. Mm-hmm. And also in the second book, uh, featured a talking dog called Chappie. <laughs> and the reason for that was that I just started writing the book and my dog Chappie died. Oh. And I thought, I'll write him into the book and that way he'll always be with me. And I made him a talking dog, and he was just as rude and opinionated as I always knew he would be. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Chappie lives forever. So Secret History is a really interesting book, because even though it's a book series, even though it's James Bond-influenced, it's you know it's James Bond with, like, mystical, magical armor, ancient history, family thing. So Which is what James Bond always needed, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> the Bond family. So I'm kind of curious where that idea sprung up from. It came because um, I wanted a second series to go alongside the night side. And I thought the whole point of doing the night side was to do a private eye who operated in the twilight zone solving cases of the weird and uncanny. I thought, well, the private eye is one of the great iconic characters in 20th century fiction. What's the other big iconic figure? And it's the secret agent. Hmm. So I thought, right, let's go with that. And I started with the basic idea of a James Bond-style agent, and everything just grew from that. Um, it, again, it's a good case of a series that didn't go where I thought it was going. In the first book, Shaman Bond is part of the family. He's part of the Druids, who are this family um, descended from the Druids, who are, if you like, the shamans for our tribe. They protect humanity from all the things that threaten it. And they've been doing it for 1,500 years. And Eddie Drood, with his username, Shaman Bond, is a field agent. And he discovers suddenly that the family isn't what he thinks it is. They turn on him, and he's declared a rogue, and suddenly his own family is trying to kill him. The only people he can turn to for help are the people who used to be his enemies. And that's when he finds out the truth about his family. So he comes back and takes over and takes control of the family. And I thought that's where we were going. But it quickly became clear that he was rubbish at being the head of the family. <laughs> he was an excellent field agent, but he was no good running it. So I had him step down and go back to being a field agent and working to improve his family from within the family, which made actually for a much more interesting series. It's a good example that the books ended up going in a direction I hadn't originally expected them to go. Hmm. Leaving room for happy accidents. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you said Ghostfinder 6, which will be in the works soon, is the last one of that series. Or so he says now. Or so you say now. I'm waiting for I'm waiting yeah, for Death Doctor Ghostfinder. In 20 years, he's gonna go. I decided to do another one. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I have this I have this horrid feeling that at some point I'll be in some old folks' home in my 80s, writing Death Doctor Zimmer frame. <laughs> the nurse will pass by and say, "Oh look, he thinks he's writing." <laughs> but you'll be happy. <laughs> exactly. I have absolutely no intention of ever retiring. They just they just find me slumped dead over my word processor someday, and hopefully just before I get around to telling you who the murderer is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the key to a long, happy life, is don't do something just so you can retire. Find something you love to do. Yeah. This is what I love to do. I've, I've always wanted to be a writer. It's, it's what I... 
to be fair, I have to say it's not what I started out doing. I started out as a professional actor huh. back um, back in the day, and I was doing theatre work, some television, one film, and I got hit with glandular fever, what you call mono, and I had it on and off for 11 years, mm-hmm. from 77 to 88, and it absolutely ruined my acting career because I couldn't, you know, if you're an actor, you've got to be prepared to go anywhere, anywhere, and I couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. So I stopped being a professional actor, and I moved sideways into writing and discovered that I enjoyed that immensely, and I've been doing that ever since. But I've been doing acting on the side all these years. I've been appearing in uh, open-air Shakespeare's for almost 30 years now. Oh, that's very interesting. What is it then that's the crossover? Because obviously acting appealed to you a great deal, and then writing certainly has. Is there a common thread that sort of draws you to both of them, or are you just getting something different out of each one? It's creating characters. You know, when when you're given a part in the play, you have to work out, you know, the past history, who they were before they appear on the page, what you bring to it, and so on. And there's no doubt that appearing in plays teaches you about character interaction and makes writing character interaction. You learn more about how they work together, what works, what doesn't work, the little telling details. The two feed each other, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. I've often thought if you're going to write screenplays, you should certainly try your hand at just learn some acting, because if you're going to be giving directions to people on stage or on the screen, you should probably know firsthand what it is you're asking. <laughs> you need to learn the important rules, such as um, learn the furniture and don't walk into the lines. <laughs> yeah. So what books, what you can't tell us, can we expect coming up? Yes, tell us all deep, dark secrets. We promise we won't say anything. <laughs> okay, at the moment, I am working on the ninth secret history book, From a Drew to a Kill. There will be three more over the next three years, and then that will be the end of that series. I'm a great believer in not letting series go on too long. We've all read too many series where the authors getting tired, the audience is getting tired, and really good characters just get frittered away to nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in that. I believe go out at the top. So I stopped the night side after 12. I'll be stopping secret history after 12. But having said that, I've got a, a collection of night side short stories coming out uh, in the summer called Tales from the Night Side. That's from Ace. And it's all the various night side stories that appeared in uh, magazines and anthologies over the years. And I said, I'll write a new Nightside story, you know, just to help sell the book. And I ended up writing a short novel, 120 pages, simply because I had this idea which came out of nowhere, and I'd forgotten how much fun writing the Nightside books were. So maybe I will go back again. You never can tell. But at the moment, the next three years will be three more Secret History. I'm doing a new series, which is going to be, well, I've got a uh, present a proposal to my publisher. I've got a new editor at Ace now. My old editor, the excellent Ginger Buchanan, who's been my editor on and off for like 25 years, is now retiring, having hit 70. You got, you, I think she's allowed to now. <laughs> so we have a new editor who's just moved in, Diana Gill. So I basically, I've got to present her with a proposal for a new series and see if she likes it. 
but I've got an idea for something really quite different, and we'll see how it goes. Hmm. Cool. We'll that. be waiting for that. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. All doing well. I shall be starting on it next year. We shall see. And so you do two books a, a year, so that's like, if you're doing 500 pages maybe, that's 1,000 pages a year, right? Am I doing my math right? That's a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Essentially... I do you sleep? Plus short stories, plus whatever I happen to be working on, because I write seven days a week, and I've tried to do six hours a day, because I am a writer. I write. That's what I do. I don't blog. I don't um, Twitter. I don't do that many conventions. That's not my job. My job is to write. That's what I do. I was just wondering if you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> It's a bad habit, but yes, occasionally. (laughs) You'd have to, to be able to function like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I think that not Twittering and and not Facebooking and everything else probably helps a great deal. I I suspect a lot of people lose more time than they realize. Yeah, it can easily be a time. (laughs) Yeah. Last question for you would be, is there any other tip you'd like to give to, to a writer out there who may be wanting to break into um, writing books. Or... Aspiring writers. Yes. Well, as I say, it, it took me 15 years to be an overnight success, so I'm probably not the best person <laughs> to be asking this. Here's my 15-year but, plan. <laughs> but he has saying power. Yeah, I, so... I always say, writing is, if you're going to be a writer, write. Sit down, put your ass on the chair, put words on the paper, do it every day, finish what you start, rewrite what you finish, send it out to a publisher, move on to the next thing. If you're going to be a writer, you've got to be serious. You've got to put in the words. That's really it. If you're serious, work. Hi, this is Robert Grant, author of Writing the Science Fiction Film, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks to Simon for speaking with us. If you haven't read his books, then we encourage you to check them out. Now, if you like fast-paced action books with sci-fi or magic, plus with humor in the mix, then he just may be the author for you. Now, we've got some other great guests lined up, so keep track of us on our Facebook page, Marx's Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marx, um, our website at genretainment.com, or all of the shows at scifipulseradio.com. Now, before we go, we do want to mention that I am judging for the Geeky Awards again this year. Because you are a geek. I guess so. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, the geeks will inherit the earth. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're taking submissions right now. So if you are making something geeky, uh, like, I don't know, a web series, a short film, uh, podcast, video, video game, podcast, uh, they have all sorts of categories. Um, then you should check out the award show. Mm -hmm. Now you can find out more about this by clicking over to thegeekyawards.com. I hope you do check it out and maybe submit. So so that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. And don't forget that you can also check out the other great shows on the Sci-Fi Pulse radio channel, like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and more. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until Until next time. time. Bad monkey.